0: section thirty six of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty five palmerston's last victory part three looking back now calmly on the events of that day and those which followed them it does not seem that such a policy would have been unwise there was much in the claims of poland which deserved the sympathy of every lover of liberty and believer in the development of civilization if this were the time or place for such a discussion it would not be difficult to show that the faults found with poland's old system of government had nothing to do with the condition of the present and that a new poland would no more be likely to fall into the errors of the past than a new irish parliament would be likely to refuse the right of representation to Catholics. There would assuredly have been a distinct advantage to the stability of European affairs in the resuscitation of Poland as a distinct and independent part of the Russian state system, even if she were not to be a wholly independent nation once again. This probably could not have been done without war, but it seems more than merely probable, that that war would have averted the necessity of many other wars which have since been fought out with less profitable result to european stability whether the english alarms about the aggressive designs of russia be founded or unfounded the legislative independence of poland would have made it superfluous to take much thought concerning them the new poland would undoubtedly have been a state with representative institutions and set in the midst of Russia and of Prussia, her example could hardly have been without a contagious influence of a very salutary kind on each. It soon became known, however, that there was to be no intervention. Lord Palmerston put a stop to the whole idea. It was not that he sympathized with Russia. On the contrary, he wrote a letter to Baron Brunow, the Russian ambassador, on February 4, 1863 in which he bluntly told him that he regarded the Polish insurrection as the just punishment inflicted by heaven on Russia, for Russia's having done so much to stir up revolution in the dominions of some of her neighbours. But Lord Palmerston had by this time grown into as profound a distrust of the Emperor Napoleon as any representative of the Social and Democratic Republic could possibly entertain. He was convinced that the Emperor was stirring in the matter chiefly with the hope of getting an opportunity of establishing himself in the Rhine provinces of Prussia on the pretext of compelling Prussia to remain neutral in the struggle, or of punishing her if she took the side of Russia. Probably Lord Palmerston was mistaken in this instance. It is not likely that Louis Napoleon ever cared for any war project or annexation scheme, except with the view of making his dynasty popular in france and he may well have thought that the emancipation of poland would gain him popularity enough to enable him to dispense with other contrivances for the remainder of his reign however that may be lord palmerston was firm he described a proposal of the emperor for an identical note to be addressed to prussia on the subject of the convention with russia as a trap lay for england to fall into and he would have nothing to do with it after a while it became known that england had decided not to join in any project for armed intervention and from that moment russia became merely contemptuous the emperor of the french would not and could not take action single-handed and prince gorchakov politely told lord russell that england had really better mind her own business and not encourage movements in poland which were simply the work of cosmopolitan revolution lord russell had spoken of the responsibility which the emperor of russia was incurring and prince gorchikov dryly replied that the emperor knew all about that and was quite prepared to accept any responsibility it used to be said at the time that prince gorchikov gently intimated in diplomatic conversation that if the english government were inclined to occupy themselves in redressing the grievances of injured nationalities they would find in ireland a legitimate and sufficient object for the exercise of their reforming energies it is certain that england received a snub and that prince gorchakov intended his reply to be thus accepted by england and thus interpreted by europe after this Austria found it necessary to secure her frontier line more carefully, and not allow it to be made any longer a basis of operations against Russia. The insurrection was flung wholly on its own resources. It was kept up gallantly and desperately for a time, but the end was certain. The Russians carried out their measures of pacification with unflinching hand. Floggings and shootings and hangings were in full vigour the russian authorities recognised the equal rights of women by administering the scourge and the rope and the bullet to them as well as to men droves of prisoners were sent to siberia new steps were taken for denationalising the country and effecting its moral as well as physical subjugation after a time the words of marshal sebastiani's famous announcement in eighteen thirty one became applicable once more and order reigned in Warsaw. The intervention of England had done much of the same service for Poland that the interposition of Don Quixote did for the boy whose master was flogging him. There was, to be sure, a certain difference in the conditions. Don Quixote did intervene practically, and while he remained in sight, the master pretended to be forgiving and merciful. It was only when the hero had ridden away that the master grimly tied up the boy again and flogged him worse than ever. In the case of England, there was no such show of forbearance. The sufferer was tied up under our very eyes, and scourged again, and more fiercely, for the express reason that England had ventured to interfere with an unmeaning and ineffectual remonstrance we have spoken of that school of liberals who would not have intervened at all on behalf of poland or any other nation many perhaps most persons will refuse to accept their principle but we can hardly believe there is any one who will not admit that such a course of policy is wise manly and dignified when compared with that which intrudes its intervention just far enough to irritate the oppressor and not far enough to be of the slightest benefit to the oppressed. The effect of the policy pursued by England in this case was to bring about a certain coldness between the Emperor Napoleon and the English government. This fact was made apparent some little time after, when the dispute between Denmark and the Germanic Confederation came up in relation to the Schleswig-Holstein succession. We need not go very deeply now into the historical bearings of this dispute, which long tormented philologists, jurisconsults, and archaeologists, as well as statesmen. An irreverent Frenchman once declared that the heavens and the earth shall pass away, but the Schleswig Holstein question shall not pass away. Practically, however, the Schleswig Holstein question would seem to have passed away so far as our times are concerned. It was in substance a question of the right of nationalities combined of later years with a dispute of succession schleswig holstein and lauenburg were duchies attached to denmark holstein and lauenburg were purely german in nationality and only held by the king of denmark as duke of holstein and lauenburg on much the same tenure as that by virtue of which our king so long held hanover the king of denmark sat as duke of holstein and lauenburg in the old germanic diet which used to hold its meetings in Frankfurt, the diet of the germanic confederation which was abolished by the prussian victory at Sedova, and which talleyrand once with grave sarcasm urged not to be precipitate in its decisions schleswig was attached more directly to the danish crown but a large proportion of the population Much the larger proportion in the southern districts were German, and there had long been an agitation going on in Germany about the claims and the rights of Schleswig. One of the claims was that Schleswig and Holstein should be united into one administrative system and should be governed independently of the Kingdom of Denmark, the King of Denmark to be the ruler of this state, as the Emperor of Austria is King of Hungary there can be no doubt that the heart of the german people was deeply interested in the condition of the schleswigers and holsteiners it was only natural that a great people should have been unwilling to see so many of their countrymen on the very edge of germany itself kept under the rule of the danish king the tendency of denmark always was toward an amalgamation of the duchies into her own state system the tendency of the germans was to regard with extreme jealousy any movement that way to descry evil purpose and even harmless innovations on the part of denmark and to make constant complaint about the tampering of the danish authorities with the tongue and the rights of the teutonic populations in truth the claims of germany and denmark were irreconcilable put into plain words the dispute was between denmark which wanted to make the duchies danish and germany which wanted to have them german the arrangement which bound them up with denmark was purely diplomatic and artificial anyone who would look realities in the face must have seen that some day or other the germans would carry their point and the principle of nationalities would have its way in that case as it had done in so many others suddenly the whole dispute became complicated with a question of succession the king of denmark frederick the seventh died in november eighteen sixty three and was succeeded by christian the ninth prince frederick of schleswig holstein sonderburg augustenburg claimed the succession to the duchies of schleswig and holstein the late king of denmark had no direct heir to succeed him and the succession had been arranged in eighteen fifty two by the great powers of europe the treaty of london then settled it on prince christian of schleswig holstein sonderberg glucksburg the father of the princess of wales the settlement however was brought about by persuading the duke of augustenburg prince frederick's father heir of holstein and claimant of schleswig to renounce his rights and now prince frederick the son disputed in his own case the validity of the renunciation the previous pretensions of denmark to encroach on the rights of the german populations in the duchies had roused an angry feeling in germany and german statesmen were willing to take advantage of any claim and any claimant to dispute the succession of the king of denmark so far as the duchies were concerned the affairs of prussia were now in the hands of a strong man one of the strongest men modern times have known daring unscrupulous and crafty as Cavour, von Bismarck was even already able to wield a power which had never been within Cavour's reach. The public intelligence of Europe had not yet recognized the marvellous combination of qualities which was destined to make their owner famous and to prove a dissolving force in the settled systems of Germany and, indeed, of the whole European continent as yet the general opinion of the world set down herr von bismarck as simply a fanatical reactionary a coarse sort of metternich a combination of bully and buffoon the schleswig holstein question became however a very serious one for denmark when it was taken up by von bismarck there does not seem the slightest reason to suppose that bismarck ever had any idea of maintaining the pretensions of the prince of augustenburg Bismarck had always ridiculed them without any affectation of concealment. From first to last, the mind of Bismarck was evidently made up, that the duchies should be annexed to Prussia. But for the time, the claims of the Augustenburg prince came in conveniently, and Prussia put on the appearance of giving them her sanction and support. The result of all this was that the Germanic Diet and the King of Denmark could not come to any terms of arrangement and to cut preliminaries short and get to what strictly concerns our history, war became certain. The Germanic Diet entrusted the conduct of the war to the hands of Austria and Prussia, who entered into joint agreements for the purpose. The German troops entered first Holstein, which under the command of the Diet they had a legal right to do, and then Schleswig and war began. Denmark, one of the smallest and weakest kingdoms in the world, found herself engaged in conflict with Austria and Prussia combined. The little Danish David had defied two Goliaths to combat at one moment. Were the Danes and their sovereign and their government mad? Not at all. They well knew that they could not hold out alone against the two German great powers, but they counted on the help of Europe. Especially they counted on the help of England. For a long time they had got it into their heads that England was pledged to defend them against any assault from the side of Germany. Lord Russell, in multitudinous dispatches, had very often given the Danish government sound and sensible advice. He had constantly admonished them that they must, for their own sakes, deal fairly with the German populations. He had urgently recommended them to leave to the Germans and the German governments no fair ground for complaint. He had never countenanced or encouraged any of the acts which tended to the enforced absorption of German populations into a Danish system. He had, on the contrary, more than once somewhat harshly rebuked the Danish government for neglect or breach of engagements, and sternly pointed out the certain consequences of such a policy. But he had at the same time implied that if Denmark took the advice of England, England would not see her wronged. He had, at all events, declared that if Denmark did not follow England's advice, England would not come to her assistance in case she were attacked by the Germans. Denmark interpreted this as an assurance that if she followed England's counsels, she might count on England's protection, and she insisted that she had strictly followed England's counsels for this very reason. When the struggle seemed approaching, Lord Palmerston said some words in the House of Commons at the close of a session, which seemed to convey a distinct assurance that England would defend Denmark in case she should be attacked by the German powers. On July 23, 1863, he was questioned with reference to the course England intended to pursue in the event of the German powers pressing too hardly on Denmark, and he then said, We are convinced, I am convinced at least, that if any violent attempt were made to overthrow the rights and interfere with the independence of Denmark, those who made the attempt would find in the result that it would not be Denmark alone with which they have to contend. These words were afterwards explained as intended to be merely prophetic and to indicate Lord Palmerston's private belief that in the event of Denmark being invaded, France or Russia or some state somewhere would probably be generous enough to come to the assistance of the danes but when the words were spoken it did not occur to the mind of any one to interpret them in such a sense the part of lord palmerston's speech which contained them was dealing distinctly and exclusively with the policy of england it was not supposed that an english minister could expect to satisfy the house of commons by merely giving a specimen of his skill in forecasting the probable policy of other states. Everyone believed that Lord Palmerston was answering on behalf of the English government and the English people. The Danes counted with confidence on the help of England. They refused to accept the terms which Germany would have imposed. They prepared for war. Public opinion in England was all but unanimous in favour of Denmark five out of every six persons were for england's drawing the sword in her cause at once five out of every six of the small minority who were against the war were nevertheless in sympathy with the danes many reasons combined to bring about this condition of national feeling in the first instance very few people knew anything whatever of the merits of the controversy even professed politicians hardly understood the question the general impression was that it was purely the case of two strong powers oppressing in wanton and wicked combination a weak but gallant people austria was not popular in england prussia was detested many englishmen were angry with her because her government had made the convention with russia which has already been mentioned and because she had a reactionary minister and a half despotic king a large number of persons did not like the germans they met in the city and in business generally some had disagreeable reminiscences of their travels in prussia and had been unfavourably impressed by the police systems of berlin moreover it was then an article of faith with most englishmen that prussians were miserable fellows who could only smoke and drink beer and who being unable to fight with any decent adversary were trying to get a warlike reputation by attacking a very weak power. Punch had a cartoon representing the conventional English soldier and sailor regarding with looks of utter contempt, an Austrian and a Prussian, and agreeing that Englishmen ought not to be called on to fight such fellows, but offering to kick them if it were thought desirable. In England at this time, military strength meant the army of the Emperor of the French, and political sagacity was represented by the wisdom of the same sovereign. A certain small number of persons in England sympathized with Denmark for another reason. The Prince of Wales had been married to the Princess Alexandra on March 10, 1863. The Princess Alexandra was, as has been already said, the daughter of the King of Denmark. She was not a Dane, except as we may, if we like, call the Emperor of Brazil a Brazilian. But her family had now come to rule in Denmark, and she became, in that sense, a Danish princess. Her youth, her beauty, her goodness, her sweet and winning ways, had made her more popular than any foreign princess ever before was known to be in England. It seemed even to some who ought to have had more judgment that the virtues and charms of the princess alexandra and the fact that she was now princess of wales supplied ample proof of the justice of the danish cause and of the duty of england to support it in arms not small therefore was the disappointment spread over the country when it was found that the danes were left alone to their defence and that england was not to put out a hand to help them of Section 36.